Welcome to TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh35. We have three hosts this week. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet, and the website spamprimer.com to help you get your inbox back. I'm Kevin Savitz. I am creator of freeprintable.net, which offers free printable documents and templates and a host of uh, Antic, the Atari 8-bit podcast, where I talk about much, uh, computers that are much older than the computers we typically talk about here. And I'm Leo Notenboom, a lover of coffee, corgis, and computers, although, as I've said before, not always in that order. And, of course, the Leo behind AskLeo.com. So, guys, what you been up to this week? Well, we're uh, waiting on the response to yet another offer and yet another house, and we'll see what happens. Um, this one, we're a lot closer to their asking price because it was a reasonable asking price, so we'll just see. So you shared some photos with me, I think it was yesterday. The house looks wonderful. I, I really like the look of it. It's got a gorgeous view, something I know that you weren't looking to give up in your move, so that's great. Yeah. And uh, it, it has a, a couple little drawbacks, which is why we didn't offer full price. But uh, all in all, I think uh, it's doable. Very cool. Yeah. How about you, uh, Kevin? I spent, uh, just got back from uh, San Jose. Um, I spent the weekend at the Vintage Computer Festival West, which is in, uh, at, at the Computer History Museum in San Jose, California. Actually, it's Mountain View, isn't it? Uh, you're right. It's in Mountain View. Okay. Uh, I flew into San Jose and then ah, good, it's, all, it's all the bear. It's all one big Silicon Valley. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I, I'm not good with the, uh, the geography down there. Um, anyway, it was in Mountain View at the museum and uh, I gave a talk and I talked to, met, met a bunch of friends and uh, had a great time. Played with old, some old computers. What did you talk about? Uh, I gave Atari? I, well, I actually, I didn't, I, I gave, hey. I know I, um, I had, I think I'd previously mentioned here that I had done a podcast episode about bits and bytes, which was a 1983 musical that went to schools to teach elementary right. school kids about computers. So basically I repurposed content and created a talk about that. Um, and, uh, played, uh, played some music from it and, and we, you know, read a little bit of the script and uh so that that was my my talk it was not about atari however <clears throat> excuse me however there there are some friends of mine there did have a very nice atari 8-bit booth that i hung out uh, at and and helped with in a, in a little bit and where they had a display of with boxed computers you know from the entire uh, uh original and an xl uh, atari 8-bit line and uh, uh video displays and it was it was very cool to uh to see to see all that it, it sounds to me like there's a lot of vintage computer festivals i mean you were at kansas fest like two weeks ago so is it just that they're close together or are there a lot of these things? no there, there's a lot of them um cool uh, yeah uh the kind of the one one of the the big organizations is called the vintage computer federation and they are based in new jersey and they have um they're uh, they, they have uh these these gatherings all around the country. Um, so there's you know one in Atlanta and there's one in you know the Bay Area. Though there's one in Seattle. Um, 
So I tend to go to this organization's uh, uh, conferences because I don't know, I like them. Um, and then the Kansas Fest is its own thing. And then, I mean, if you're international, there are, there are conferences, you know, in a lot of them in, in Poland and Germany and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, I'm at Apple's and Atari's, but there, there's an annual conference for people who like TRS-80s and there's another one for who, who like Commodore. So, and I'm um, sure there's one for Osborne somewhere. Probably. That was my first computer. Really? Nice. Um, so, I think, so, so there's ones that are very specific to two platforms like Kansas Fest is for the Apple or, or whatever. Uh, and then there's one that's kind of ones that are more generic, just like we like old computers, which might be anything from, you know, big, big hardware mainframe stuff to, you know, Apple's or Osborne's or Atari's or, or, or whatever. Very neat. Yeah. There was a great display there that I enjoyed about, uh, the BBC Micro and uh, BBC Archimedes machines, which are not something, you know, as an American, I had a lot of experience with back in the day, but they were, they were very uh, cool machines to sit down and get to play with. So, well, anyway. yeah. How about How's you, that? Leo? Well, last week was mostly just, you know, getting back in the groove after having had the Corky picnic uh, last weekend. The, um, I say it involved a certain amount of cleaning up and, that's Uh-oh. not a not, <laughs> not a lie. Um, we we have the uh, as I like to put it the, the poop of a hundred corgis uh, in our garbage can, and of course, wouldn't you know it? Uh, we have you know weekly pickup. This is the week they happen to miss us, so it's been out in the garbage can, kind of fermenting uh, until oh joy. supposedly picked up tomorrow. But yeah, it's uh, it's funny. People are are relatively good about picking up their dogs' um, uh, left Leaving. behinds, <laughs> and uh, which is re- which. Of course, we really appreciate that. Actually, makes makes the event uh, so definitely somewhat more pleasurable for us. It's not not like we have to run around the backyard picking it all up. But um, you know, it, the the thing to do with this, and we've struggled with this over the years. We used to. We used to bury it. We used to, you know, throw it in a pasture. We used to do this. We used to do that. The actual thing to do, and this is according to our uh, um, our local governments, is to uh, bag it up, bag it up again, and throw it in the garbage. So that's what what happens to it. It's more environmentally friendly, huh? Apparently, um, apparently, huh. uh, putting it in the landfill is is a better place than uh, than whatever else. So that was, you know, that was just kind of a, a funny story from last week. Um, in other news, it's interesting. I think we discussed here last week that Dropbox was increasing the amount of um, space that they offered to their uh, business customers. Uh, if you pay for uh, what had been their one terabyte um, I'm not sure now if you paid for one of their, their tiers as a, as a business user, their business tier, uh, you now get two terabytes of space. And one of the things I've been looking at is the amount of space that I use online. I think I mentioned before that I um, post, or I I shouldn't say post, I back up all of my photographs um, on Amazon S3 because it's there, it's big, it's everywhere. It's, it's a very safe way to do it. Um, unfortunately, uh, I was starting to pay attention to the bills that were coming in and noticing that it was creeping up. And as it turns out, um, it, it doesn't help that I have now a terabyte of uh, photographs and movies of my own. And oh my. 
that's adding up. So I'm in the process actually of moving all that stuff to a Dropbox account. Uh, I went ahead and went for that. And as it turns out, I'm really glad I did because it is allowing me to do some things that I uh, was unable to do with S3. S3 is very unique in the sense that, you know, it's lots of storage. There's lots of different things you can do with it. It's really intended to integrate well with the rest of the Amazon services, but it does not have what I would call a standard interface to the world. So you can't just use FTP or you can't just use standard copy utilities. You have to have things that are unique to Amazon Web Services. Uh, Dropbox, on the other hand, you just install the app, put files in a folder and magic happens. They get uploaded automatically, which is awesome. The, uh, the thing that's actually going on right now as we speak that solves a problem that I've had for a long time is I back up my photographs locally as well. I have a machine in my basement running Linux. Unfortunately, uh, the tools that I was using to do that, I mean, you can't, you, Linux is a hard platform to run things like OneDrive or uh, even Google Drive on, but as it turns out, Dropbox has a native Linux client and it's working. So this is the first time that I'll actually have true cross-platform, uh, very simple, very easy uh, replication and backup of files that I care about. So on the geeky side, that's, that was making me smile this week. I, I was very pleased to have uh, pulled that trigger and moved, started moving some stuff into Dropbox. I may in the long run actually even move some of the stuff I have in OneDrive over to Dropbox simply because it enables the, uh, the Linux functionality that, uh, that matters to me. Nice. So just out of curiosity, mm -hmm. uh, a terabyte on S3 costs about what per month? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd say it's on the order of about 40 to $50. It's not, it's not outrageous, but it's, it's more than Dropbox. It's more than Dropbox, exactly. And Dropbox is actually, the, the, this plan for two terabytes is like $200 plus tax uh, per year. So you, know, you do the math, it's actually significantly cheaper. But as it turns out, it's also cheaper than uh, most of the alternatives uh, with respect to like a Google Drive is another comparison. And I think there's some other storage providers out there as well. Um, I'm fortunate enough to get uh, Microsoft Office at a discount by virtue of being a Microsoft alumni. So I'm not paying as much as um, uh, you know, most people do for the terabyte, or I think you mentioned last week, up to five terabytes that you can get with Microsoft's OneDrive. But like I said, one of the things that it doesn't solve is that it's, in, it's, it's almost impossible to get OneDrive to operate correctly on Linux. Uh, whereas with what with Dropbox, it's just been awesome. It just worked, and and I appreciate mm -hmm. when that happens. I've been using and, my Dropbox with Linux for quite some time just to back up stuff on my my business server, and mm -hmm. uh, it just it's cheap and easy, and uh, just as, I don't know those PSP functions that just kind of push it out there. I yeah. still only have a terabyte of storage space. Um, I never got the email saying I'd get more, so maybe somehow I don't qualify for that. Yeah, check out the plan. Yeah, I mean, go, go yeah. check out their pricing plans. I'm only using 25% of my, or 33% or something of my space, but still, I mean, you know, I want it. I deserve it, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. it's showing the professional now gets two terabytes and it's 20 bucks a month unless you pay for a year in advance and it's a little less. So mm -hmm. it's a deal. I logged into my Dropbox just to check just now and uh, it, uh, it's like, hey, it's been a while since you've done a security checkup. And, you know, I 
believer in that. So I'm, it's like verified my email. And then it gave me a list of the devices and browsers that are authorized to use my Dropbox account. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, uh, there's the iPhone 4 that, that you last logged in six <laughs> years ago. And the yeah. iPhone 5 last logged in four years ago. I'm just like, mm, why don't we remove those devices? Yeah, we send permission for those. Yeah, yeah I did. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, it's very thorough and, and yet understandable. It's just like, hey, you know, these are the things that logged in and here's the, the linked apps. And then since I removed devices, it's like, mm, you really should change your password now. So uh, I've been, I'm doing that as we speak. And, uh, and, and in like, fact, yeah. they support um, two-factor, which I also have enabled. Mm-hmm. Um, I went through the same thing that I was, since I'm ramping up my use of Dropbox, I stumbled into that same thing that shows you all the apps. And yep, there was, there was stuff in there that I haven't had for years. So those got booted right away. Right. I mean, those, uh, those phones are perfectly safe. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're still in a closet somewhere <laughs> <laughs> getting old, but uh, yeah, still feel better updating them. Yep. And I'm looking now and sure enough, like old Android phone and an old laptop are still there. So <laughs> they're going away right as we not, speak. Yeah. <laughs> so, all righty. Um, how about a breach of the week? Breach of the week. Um, How many do we have? Um, just a couple. Um, <laughs> my, well, my throat can only handle doing that once. So, that's, I, yeah. yeah, my ears can only handle that. You doing that once. <laughs> so this one I stumbled across a few days ago. It's actually um, made certainly the news in the tech sphere. Uh, Reddit, a popular discussion site, um, which I still have a hard time getting my brain around their user interface, but everybody else can do it, so whatever. Um, they suffered a breach that um, uh, exposed a bunch of their user information. Standard stuff in that sense. The interesting aspect of this one, since I try to, since we have so many breaches to choose from these days, I try and come up with an interesting aspect for the ones that we talk about, is that this was apparently done via. Um, uh, SMS intercept, as we discussed it last week. The, um, and by that, I mean that they did whatever they did to actually bypass or fake two-factor authentication by um, assigning a phone number to, or to a different phone and then using it. And so one of the problems, and I'm seeing lots of stories about, yep, two-factor, I'm sorry, SMS is as bad as you think it is, yada, yada. Um, and you should not use it or you should use an alternative. Uh, my thinking on that, and, and you guys can and, you know, to correct me if I'm wrong, my thinking on that is that uh, to get to this point, to get to the point where uh, using or even bypassing any two-factor authentication, there had to be knowledge of the password. They had to know the password in order to log in. Now, for most people, having any form of two-factor authentication, even if it is known to have some weaknesses like SMS does, is much better than not having any two-factor authentication at all. And what I'm afraid of is that some of the uh, news reports will cause people to decline two-factor authentication if only SMS is offered. And I think that that's a mistake. Um, SMS isn't perfect, but it does take more work. It's non-trivial to uh, to actually make it you know to make it happen. And in some senses, you almost have to be targeted 
in order to uh, to have this SMS two-factor authentication approach get broken. But for the vast majority of people, it's still way, way, way better than not having any two-factor at all. That being said, sure, if there are other alternatives like using the Google Authenticator or Authy or using um, the YubiKey physical key that I think I talked about last week, those are better. Those are currently more secure. But the difference is in a, at a practical level for the average consumer, at a practical level, the difference really isn't that great. So I'm still of the, of the, fact, of the fact that, or of the mind that um, SMS two-factor, if that's all you got, I will take it. And I definitely have accounts that have only that as my two-factor. Yeah, and I agree completely. It's, it's a really difficult thing to compromise a cell phone so you can intercept the SMS. So yeah, it can be done, but it's a heck of a lot better. It's a lot of work for them to do that. And in the meantime, you might change your password while they're trying to figure out that. So I yeah, think, definitely I better than nothing. I can, yeah, it's better than nothing. It's not as good as you can get. I think of it as one and a half factor authentication. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Actually. <laughs> I mean, if, yeah, if they offer something else, great but if not you know the things like yeah i mean like paypal offers the only way they offer two-factor authentication is through sms and i wish they'd offer through google authenticator yep. they don't they're paypal and they're stupid and they're slow and mm, but the, also i have several paypal accounts you know two for business one for personal uh, actually three anyway i think i have four total and they only allow you to do two-factor authentication for a, for a, one phone number with one account. So which which uh, account is most important that I don't want to get hacked? Exactly. That's the one. That's the, one. Yep. It's the one that gets the most money, though, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, my bank numbers, right? uh, only supports uh, SMS and email two-factor authentication. Uh, yeah, email, again, email is, is like the one and a quarter factor, yeah. right? In the sense that it's there, it's something, it works, it's absolutely better than nothing. It's annoying as all get out because uh, email takes time. SMS at least shows up within a few seconds. Usually. But usually. Oh yeah. Well, I've actually been really, really fortunate with that. It's been working really well for me. But um, email, just by the nature of the system and, and the, the various providers along the way, can sometimes take enough time that you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs waiting to log into an account where you really need to do something quickly. So it's unfortunate that they are stuck in that mindset. Um, I've, I did enable the uh, YubiKey on my Google account. And that actually turned out, I think we talked about that last week. Um, and that has turned out to be not nearly as painful as I thought it would be. Um, it's actually very smooth and, and worked very well. Do you have to and, leave it plugged in all the time or just? Nope. nope. Just when you log in, you plug yeah. it in, you push the button, you know, well, you plug it in and then you push the button when Google asks you as part of the login sequence, and then you can take it out. And I did confirm, um, I actually went to like a command prompt, inserted the key and pushed the button. And it typed a random sequence of keystrokes. Obviously, they're not random, right? It's, it's, it's some kind of an encrypted. Right. But it's definitely not random. And it changes when you push it again. 
So in a sense, it's kind of sort of doing something similar to the Google Authenticator style of um, uh, of identification where there is something that is changing over time and your ab- that is unique to that specific key in your possession and your ability to have that key provide that information at the time it's requested is what then uh, confirms you actually have the key in your hand. So is the YubiKey, does it use more than just digits? Uh, to be on- no, it's, it's certainly alpha. Um, okay. I think it's, uh, it gives it infinite, well, not infinitely, but a lot more combinations. Well, but since you're pushing a button, there's no limit to length. There's nothing wrong sure. with typing exactly. in, you know, a hundred or 200 characters worth of information. Right. So, That's my point because on authenticator, it's, it's six numeric digits. That's it. Right. Right. But um, on the, on the YubiKey, if I, if I remember correctly, it was like, uh, maybe 32 characters, maybe longer. Uh, and they were, they looked mostly like lowercase alphas, probably with some numbers in them. But anyway, that was, it was a significantly long and uh, random appearing string of characters. So it's actually, like I said, I've, I've been fairly impressed with it. I, and it, it is now hanging on my keychain next to my car key and the house key. Um, it's one of those things that I now carry with me. And I assume there's backup codes in case you lose it. So, for example, with respect to Google, um, all I really did was I added the YubiKey to my account. And in fact, I had a situation where I didn't have the YubiKey with me. And I just said, hey, I'm having trouble. And it immediately took me to a page and said, okay, which of your other two-factor authentication mechanisms would you like to use? And in my case, I had my phone, so I fired up Authy and the old style of Authy two-factor authentication uh, work just fine. Now, there's an argument that says if you have multiple two-factor authentications associated with your account, you're kind of reducing the security. No, that's like four-factor. That's like twice as good, right? If you had, <laughs> if you had to provide them all, yes. <laughs> but since you only have to provide one of them and you can say, I can't provide that one right now, let me try one of the others, that actually does reduce the security just a little bit because if one of the others somehow got compromised in whatever form it might get compromised, um, then an attacker could conceivably go through the same sequence and and use that. So ideally in in the long run, you would probably um, have a set of backup codes that you save somewhere and then one um, authentication device, a physical authentication device is the ideal, like either uh, the Google Authenticator slash Authy approach or something like a YubiKey. Uh, in but the case, bottom line, again, is any kind of t- two-factor authentication is better than none. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. Without, so, without any hesitation. So I called my bank the other day uh, because I wanted to tell them that I would be taking a trip. I want to make sure my card's going to work when I'm out of the country. By the way, I won't be on the podcast next week. I'll be out of the country. Don't rob me. Um, <laughs> I hear that there's some PayPal accounts that don't have two factors. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I called the bank. And actually, uh, uh, so, and, and I was like, hey, I'm going to be out of the country. I want to make sure your card's going to work, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, sure, we want to you know, verify who you are. And they start asking me security questions. The, the long story short of this is I failed the security questions that they asked me. They're uh-huh. just like, uh, you know, uh, when, when was the, the last 
you know, deposit that you made. I was just like, I don't know. I think it was the other day. And I think it was, you know, about X dollars. And then he's like, mm. he's just like, yeah. yeah, he's like, well, he doesn't actually say no, because they don't want to tell you if the answer is wrong. You know, they don't want to tell you for next. She's so like, what, what email address is associated with their account? Well, I honestly, I don't know if it's Kevin at Savitz.com or Savitz at gmail.com. So I said that, and I don't think he liked my indecisiveness. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then, what exact bank is this? And what's the account number? <laughs> and then, um, and what are you leaving again? And, he, and he's <laughs> like, when was your last, uh, when was your last ATM withdrawal? And I was like, when was my last ATM withdrawal? My wife is sitting there right next to me. And she said, oh, I took out, you know, a hundred dollars yesterday from, from, from the ATM. And she, he hears that. And he says, it sounds like you're being coached. So I can't use your answer. Oh God. <sighs> And then he's just like, and then he was like, it looks like you have an automatic uh, transfer coming up in the next couple of days. What is that? And I said, I don't know. The reason it's automatic is so that I don't have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so eventually he was just like, mm, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You're gonna have to come into the bank, which is what we had to do. So it was, it was very frustrating. And yet on one level, I appreciate that they were trying to do the right thing and make sure that someone didn't come in and, and, trick them into doing something with, with my account. And yet when the security actually works, it's, it can be very, you know, I'm just like, I failed my own security. Questions. It's interesting because one of the, the scenarios that I hear about often actually uh, are people that are having trouble logging into their account and they have set up their security questions without bothering to even think about them. Mm. Um, they, they, do not. They do exactly the same as you did. They failed their own security question answers because they didn't remember or, you know, it just had been so long ago or they just didn't, didn't put any thought into setting them up in the first place. Um, or <laughs> they followed the advice of the time, which is to uh, set bogus answers. So that, you know, if, you know, if somebody knows you love animals and what your favorite pet is, don't use your favorite pet's name as an answer to the favorite pet security question. Use something completely unrelated, right? Uh, you know, like Microsoft or something like that. But the point what is, what I do is is put in in my uh, LastPass notes. I'll say I use this birth date for this account. Right, mm. right. So there's, you can do that. There's lots of different techniques, but my point is that it is incredibly common for people to not know the answers to their own security questions. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons that we're seeing security questions be used less and less often in favor of moving to something like a two-factor authentication of some form. Um, I, I don't think I've actually had to, no, I shouldn't say that. There was an account not long ago where I actually had to provide some more security answers, but they're going away. They're, they're very slowly going away. And that's a good thing as, by, as far as I'm concerned. Yep. The other thing I do when I call my bank is I make sure I've got my statement open on the <laughs> screen in front of me mm. so that, you know, if they ask me what the last yeah. deposit was, I can tell them. If I, you know. I made the call, the call from a, a moving car. And if, if I had been, yeah, next time I will log right. in the website first. So I have all the answers to their stupid questions ready. <laughs> so mm -hmm. feel for you, man. <laughs> Uh, so, Randy, you, you came up with a, a breach of the week. What's this Android well, sort app? of. Um, a whole bunch of Android apps that were in the Play Store got removed from Google Play Store because they were infected with a Windows keylogger. And 
The interesting thing about this is that it actually didn't cause any kind of security problem for people who may have download those, downloaded those apps because it was a Windows keylogger, not an Android keylogger. And what they pretty much figured out is whoever was developing the apps got a virus or a malware. <laughs> oh, and that's what ended up eventually going into the app because it inserted something into their, their development folder, which I think is kind of hilarious. But, you know, and, and the good thing to me is that Google figured this out. They saw the signatures of this uh, malware and they pulled the apps and said, you know, figure it out. Give us a clean one if you want. But, but right. uh, apparently they didn't get slapped too darn hard. It's funny because that, that too is another common question. People are concerned when they, connect, when they connect their phone up to their computer. Can that transfer malware? And the short, I mean, again, th there are no absolutes, right? The, the short answer is that, well, yes, it's possible. But pragmatically and realistically, it's incredibly, incredibly, incredibly unlikely because they're two completely different platforms. If you've got malware on your Android, it's targeting the Android. If you and any malware for a PC wouldn't run there. Malware for a PC somehow needs to make it to a PC and just connecting up your phone to your PC isn't going to cause files like that to get transferred. On the other hand, um, you know, phones kind of sort of often look like uh, USB devices and USB thumb drives. And we know that you can transfer malware that way. That way. But it's more often a case then that um, malware made it from a PC onto your phone looking like a thumb drive and then made it way its way onto the next PC that you connected it to. Again, possible, but extremely unlikely. So I was really wondering exactly what the heck Windows malware, you know, mal Windows Keylogger was doing in the Google Play Store, but now I get it. Yeah, I, I just thought it was a, a pretty funny vector of attack. And, and uh, you know, it really didn't bother anybody may have made the you know the code a little bit bigger or something but all in all it wasn't a problem and i just thought it was fairly amusing just to, you know like you said come up with something interesting when we're talking about breaches and i thought that was pretty interesting yep yep so there is i think this broke today um, out of bleeping computer uh, the headline is New Method Simplifies Cracking WPA WPA2 Passwords on 802.11 Networks. Otherwise known as Wi-Fi. Also known as Wi-Fi. And, you know, I read through this article, and yes, it's a thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's important. It's a dent. It's not a, um, it's not a true vulnerability um, in the sense that it doesn't let anybody just walk up to your to your network and uh, connect to it like they could say if you were still using WEP, uh, WEP security on your uh, This is a very old one that's long compromised. That you should never use. Um, it's, I, I consider it the, it's the equivalent of having no encryption at all at this point. So WPA2 has a couple of, of I'll just say weaknesses. Um, the, another headline that came up within the last couple of weeks is that WPA3 is actually uh, that I believe it's been uh, defined and decided on. It's starting to roll out, and that's something we'll probably talk about in future episodes. But WPA2 has a, has a couple of issues, and this is one that, um, in reality, um, 
I'm not even sure the best way to describe it yet. Um, it, it weakens one aspect of the handshake that occurs when you are transmitting data between the computer and an, and an access point over your, uh, over your Wi-Fi. And apparently, uh, the vulnerability is such that routers come often, well, actually all routers now, all Wi-Fi uh, routers come with uh, passwords put in place. There's a default password set up for your WPA2 connection. Um, and apparently those are known when they are the same for all routers from a particular manufacturer. And as it turns out, a number of manufacturers go through the effort of assigning each router a different um, uh, password, but some of them use a pattern and the pattern is also well known. So it's not that difficult to guess. Anyway, these two things apparently come together so that the work involved to actually decrypt a connection uh, can happen at any point in the conversation, but it still takes time. Uh, so it's, like I said, it's not one of those things that, that as far as I understand it, represents a true immediate threat. The single most important thing you can do uh, to your router is, well, the single most important thing you can do to your router is to change the- Hit admin. it with a sledgehammer. Oh, yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> is, to, is to change the admin password so that you, you are protecting the router's configuration. But the next, I think, most important uh, thing to do then is to change the password used on your Wi-Fi connection. Have it be something that you set, have it be long, have it be complex, have it be all you know, the usual password rules. Um, longer is better than short and complex. So uh, if you want like a 20 character, five word phrase for your Wi-Fi password, that's fine. Just as long as it's not whatever password the router came with. Um, then you're in, you're in you know, basically as good as you can be protected from whatever this turns out to be. Yep. The, the thing I thought was kind of amusing about this was this guy who does a ha password cracking tool discovered this vulnerability while he was looking for new ways to crack WPA3 security. Right. So, yep. you know, they're already working on that too. So well, we might as well just skip ahead to WPA4 at this point. Yeah. Um, I, it depends. It's funny because I would, like you said, I, it doesn't surprise me in the least that the moment the WPA3 um, uh, protocol. Was, protocol was announced that, you know, hackers would start looking at it and figuring out how to break it. Of course they are. But of course, I would hope also that those that we sometimes refer to as quote unquote ethical hackers would also be doing the same thing. And they're the ones who on discovery of something like this would actually let the manufacturers know that, hey, there's this problem over here. As this person did, at least with the WPA2 vulnerability. So it's possible that while he might've been looking into WPA3, he might've been doing it with good intent. Um, and it's that I want that. I honestly, I want people with good intent to bang away at these encryption protocols, these security protocols, because they're the ones who are going to come at it in ways that the designers didn't intend, didn't think of, and potentially find some of these vulnerabilities uh, and allow them, you know, 
a lot of the manufacturers then to go in and fix them somehow. And, and to be sure, this guy does look like a, a white hat. He's, he published it on his blog, on the mm-hmm. Hashcat blog, and uh, his name is Jens Stube. So it's, it's not like he's hiding behind things. He's, right. he's being upfront on this. So, and, yeah. and good for him. You know, that's, that's really a, a useful thing to let the yeah, manufacturers right. know that they've got vulnerabilities. And, and, and I appreciate that. Like I said, it's the kind of thing I want to see because folks that, that try to break things in a responsible way add value to the internet, right? They are making this stuff safer by exposing vulnerabilities as a you bet. To, to the manufacturers. All right. Well, let's uh, switch to something uh, more fun and just geeky that I like. Can we stop talking about security, please? Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to something really fun. Space. Rockets. Space. Yeah. So SpaceX is going to do their first refly of their latest rocket. It was kind of interesting that um, when they got the first one of these boosters back, um, the whole idea is they want to be able to refly, refly these things without having to take them all apart and refurbish them. So when they got one back after their first launch, the only way they can tell if they need to take it apart to refurbish it is to take it apart and look. <laughs> so it's kind of amusing that, uh, yeah, that's what they had to do, but their bottom line was, yeah, this looks pretty good. And so they're going to be launching a uh, relaunching a block five rocket tonight. And that is at there. They have a two hour launch window is going to be going to geosynchronous orbit and it opens at one eighteen AM Eastern tonight or 10, 18 Pacific. So I'm going to try to stay up for that. And hopefully they don't get, get too late into their two hour window. But I just think the way you can watch that live is just so cool. Yeah, they do a pretty awesome job of, uh, of providing it. I'm assuming it would be uh, um, at SpaceX.com if you... Uh, yeah, that's where I always find it. Yeah, yeah. And this is their big rocket. This is the, the one that's... No, this isn't, this isn't the... the BFR or a big Falcon rocket. That hasn't, that hasn't flown yet though. Uh, I'm thinking this is block five of the regular. uh, I can't think of the name of the uh, Falcon nine Falcon nine. Yes. Thank you. So there's the Falcon Um, nine and they strap five of them together. Well, that's the BFR. Oh, okay. Never mind then. I'm confused about what's what. Yeah. This, this is their, their bread and butter. Uh, usual rocket that they use for for general launches of satellites and such. Okay. So it's just one of those boosters, and that's what they use the most. They've only done one BFR so far. That was when they sent the Tesla into solar orbit. Right. And uh, I don't think they have any more of those scheduled at this point, but I think the Air Force is interested in launching something really heavy, but they haven't said what, of course. Of course. I have some suggestions for them, but we probably shouldn't talk about this here. <laughs> so that's all I have to say about that. I just think it's neat and it's techie and it's uh, it's rocket science. It is rocket science. Mm-hmm. It really is. <laughs> so uh, what's up with Google and China? I have mixed feelings about this. Uh, It came out in the news that Google has been working on a censored um, search engine for China. Now, Google used to have an office in China and they 
pulled out of China because uh, China was trying to hack their servers and, and they didn't like the authoritarian regime. Uh, and that was eight years ago, and now they're back and we're working with the Chinese again. And several senators have, quote, demanded to know more about what they characterize as a deeply troubling development. And my first thought is, what the heck does the Senate have to do with the private business dealings of a private company working overseas, as long as they're not giving up, you know, national secrets or something? But on the other hand, you know, if anything, China is more authoritarian now than they were eight or 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And why help that? So, you know, I see both sides of this, but I, I'm not sure really where I come down on it. Yeah, like you, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, it's the, the concern is that it sets a precedent and right. that um, other countries can then essentially uh, control information to their liking, uh, like China apparently already does in many, many ways. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, honestly, I'm not sure what value Google brings to China by doing a censored version of Google because China has their own search engines. People are already dealing with restricted information flow. Mm -hmm. If there were something unique about it, something different, something where Google would provide information that they couldn't find somewhere else, that would actually make a heck of a lot of sense for Google to try and step in there. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure why they're interested in doing this and why China's even interested in letting them under any circumstances. I feel like if Google is willing to do a censored search engine for China, then what's then they're already halfway to agreeing to doing a censored search engine in the United States. You know, what happens when the government comes to them and like, we don't want people to know about X or Y and it, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like Google has strayed far away from their old, don't, don't be, be evil, old, don't know. be evil uh, guidance. Which and it does sound pretty evil. It does. No, I don't think it's the right choice. I mean, famously, uh, China doesn't want people searching, for instance, for information about the Tiananmen Square massacre. And people started getting uh, around that. You know, they were searching for for uh, you know June 4th, and then you couldn't search for June 4th. So people started searching, you know, <laughs> the, the code word was May 35th. And... Uh, <laughs> Or which, is it July 30th? No, which, yeah. Yeah, which, uh, which was brilliant. And then that started getting blocked. So it, I think it's a constant cat and mouse game. And maybe that's why they want Google as, as a new search engine, because Google is good at moving with trends. And as the internet changes, they are good at, at following those things and making things findable or not findable um, as, as things change. But I mean... My opinion has absolutely no juice in any of this, but I don't think this is a good thing in any yeah, way. But that's what, you know, we talk about it anyway. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I read um, <laughs> what I've been telling people lately. I read a headline. I didn't read the article because who reads articles these days? Right. Um, that the BBC switched their website to HTTPS and they were instantly blocked by China. 
because China can't examine the contents of the HTTPS stream in order to filter it. But as we've talked about before, the whole internet is moving very quickly towards- I understand, I, I get it, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. I don't know what this implies for China other than um, more digital isolation, which, you know, their government might very well see as a good thing. Yeah. Well, interestingly, I just went to bbc.com and it answered in HTTP, but I clicked the link to see what its preference was. And sure enough, it was HTTPS. Right. And of course, it's not um, bbc.com. It would be bbc.co.uk that, it, that folks uh, are probably going to. The, the, what that's we would probably call, true. What we would call the real BBC. Um, <laughs> bbc.com is the BBC filtered for America. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, and, and amusingly, um, when I just went there again, it flashed up as a green... Um, secure on the on the bar, and then it went back to not green. And, and I presume, let me click in there. Oh, they've probably got secure. They've probably got. Yeah, they probably do. Yeah. But then when I click, yeah, they've they've definitely got some mixed content here because it it pops out of secure, but it's still HTTPS when I click the link. Right, right. Which is a whole nother ball of wax. Mm-hmm. Okay, but they probably spell protocol with an extra U or two, so. Yeah, probably true. (laughs) All right, well, what else do we have? Kevin, we've got on the list the Vintage Computer Festival West. I don't know why that's there. I didn't put that. Okay, you already talked about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah. So Randy stumbled onto this one, and and my feeling is kind of meh. Um, It's an article on How To Geek how to enable Windows Defender's secret crapware blocker. Um, And, you know, it's an under the hood. You have to fire up Windows PowerShell to set a setting and and have it do some things. It's, and it's Windows 10 only. Um, The interesting thing about it is that it's, I I like it in the sense that it's a sense of progress in an important direction. Because crapware, pups, that kind of stuff, they are a scourge. They are easy to get. People get infected or get get this stuff installed on their machines all the time. Um, The problem here is that I think what this really is, is a not fully baked feature. And there are uh, definitely other uh, solutions. Um, How to Geek looks at uh, Malwarebytes as the as the canonical solution actually for protecting yourself from, uh, from crapware. But um, it's, it's like I said, so I'm, I'm not particularly excited about, you know, having them do it, having, having, you know, having anybody actually turn this feature on right now. Uh, It's like I said, it's mildly interesting. I like the direction, but I really want to see where it, uh, where it plays out in the future. Now, when I first saw this suggestion, I thought it was something else. There is another feature in Windows Defender that is public. I mean, it is part of the Windows UI that uh, is essentially built as a ransomware protection uh, feature. And uh, it hasn't gotten a lot of press, which I think is actually appropriate for the, for the average consumer. The problem is uh, it's essentially a whitelist, which means that it knows a fixed set of programs that should be allowed to run. 
And then if you run something that isn't on that list, it asks you. Right now, the mechanism for specifying what program should be allowed to run is extremely cumbersome. And, and to be honest, probably beyond the, uh, um, um, the ability of the average uh, consumer, the average, the average computer user. So that one is also, in my opinion, not ready for prime time. Ransomware is also a scourge, absolutely. But that um, isn't yet the solution. There have been a couple of, of solutions that try and restrict what programs can run and where they can run from and so forth. And they've kind of made incremental progress at, at some of the common techniques that ransomware has, but they usually come at a, at a fairly high cost of um, either usability or just confusion uh, when programs that used to work suddenly stop and you don't know why. So, uh, like I said, I like to see progress in this direction, but this seems like it's not ready for prime time and it's hidden for a reason. And I want to just back up a little bit um, is what crapware is. And, and you said PUPS, which stands for potentially unwanted programs, which I actually call probably unwanted programs. Well, there's no that, probably about it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's almost always junk you don't want on your computer. And this is like toolbars that, you know, load into your browser and they're doing things like, if you go to Amazon, they'll insert their own affiliates code in there to take a little chunk of your, of your purchase and things like that. I mean, it's, it's really slimy, nasty stuff, right. but it doesn't rise to the level of malware. It's interesting because I actually misuse the term crapware. Um, it really should be pups and potentially or, or probably unwanted programs. Um, these are the programs that as you're installing uh, program A, um, it also, if it's, a, if it's well behaved, it will ask you if you want to install completely unrelated program B, where program B is like a toolbar or some silly thing that you don't need, want, or, um, or you know, really care about but it's defaulted on. And if you're not paying attention or if you take the, the default options, you know, that will just let us make all the decisions for you. Well, one of the decisions they'll make for you when they install is to install this other stuff. I tend to refer to it as crap, but the term crapware actually tends to refer to software that comes pre-installed on your machine when you open it out of the box. Well, and so, to be fair to you, how to geek did use the word crapware in their headline. So that's why you okay. said it. So, yeah. And as always, I mean, these are, these are f informal terms, but there's like common usage. And like I said, um, if you, um, uh, yeah, the crapware is something that I think usually refers to uh, what's pre-installed and uh, pups and just crap. <laughs> well, well and, and stuff, stuff is pre-installed. I, generally see it's called bloatware, but yeah, I, I suppose crapware is just another name for it. There's certainly no shortage of terms, but it all boils down to software you don't want. Yep. And the way to keep away from it is when you're installing anything, always say custom install. Don't just take the, mm. the default as Leo was saying, look at everything it's asking you if you want it. And mm -hmm. then, and if it's not something that you need for the program, you probably don't want it. There's no probably about it. You just don't. I mean, well, I, I wouldn't say that because, you know, like when I'm installing a graphics program that says, do you want extra fonts? Well, so, yeah, usually I do. Um, right. And there's, there's extra little functions. 
Those are right. those related to the software you're, you're installing. But, but they're but not required all, for the program to work. So that's, that's why right. I was making that distinction. But the, the, the important point here is that the thing you're looking for is something that is completely unrelated to the software you're installing. So if you're installing... Like a toolbar. Like a toolbar. If you're installing your, your graphics program and it offers you anti-malware software, a trial of the latest anti-malware program, um, even if it's a reputable offer, right? It's a reputable program which I've seen, uh, you don't want it. You, if you're doing things right, you've already got a solution in place. There's, you don't need something new just because you're installing this graphics program or this other thing. So it's the unrelated nature of what's being offered and the fact that it's probably offered by default, is turned on by default, and that it's probably hidden unless you say uh, custom install. Yep. All right, Kevin, you had something about... Uh... App Store affiliate yeah, payments. This is kind of interesting in, in a techie and, and business sort of way. Uh, Apple, as you know, has an app store for the the iTunes i for the iPad iPhone users, and they have for a very long time had an affiliate program where if you know it's an affiliate program if someone if a, a website or a person links into an app and uh, somebody buys that app, then they. Uh, the person who did the, the link of the company link gets a, a little cut, and which uh, is totally legitimate. Just totally legitimate. It's 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 something that's been happening for years. And you know, if you click an Amazon link from a from another site, it's probably it's, prob- it's all similarly probably an affiliate link. Um, but Apple has sh- has shut down its affiliate payments for the App Store, and uh, I linked to an interesting. You mean for everybody? For everybody um, for all apps Um, it just shut it down it now the the affiliates uh, are still uh, can can still link to music and to uh, movies and that sort of thing and get an affiliate cut but as for apps no more Uh, i linked to an interesting article in tidbits which is a a wonderful uh, newsletter about iOS and, and Mac things. A very old and respected one. Yes, it is. And uh, almost as old as, as your newsletter. Actually, it's Randy. a little bit older. Uh, even older than your newsletter, Randy. <laughs> Hard to believe, I know. And, uh, but anyway, go ahead. The article is called uh, Apple's Termination of App Store Affiliate Payments is Unnecessary, Mean-Spirited, and Harmful. And I, I've linked to that in the show notes. And basically, I mean, there are, it's, as, I mean, there are so many apps in the app store. There are hundreds of thousands of apps and finding them is not easy. You go to the app store and you can search and, but you know, there might be literally 50 apps that do something like you want to do and which is the right one. Um, So there there are many sites that filter review apps and tell you what's new and what's interesting and what, what's good. And one of the ways that these websites used to make money was through the, uh, the affiliate links. Um, one of my, my favorite sites uh, is called uh, Touch Arcade. And it basically, they review uh, games, iOS games. And I found some great games through the site. And, you know, when I read the review, I click their link. I'm like, oh, you know, I spend whatever my, dollar 99 on, on a game, then they get a little taste and great. Good for them. And that has kept that, that site in business for years. And they, 
like the day after uh, Amazon, uh, sorry, uh, Apple made this announcement that they're shutting down the affiliate program, Touch Arcade is just like, we don't know what's going to happen now. It's, it's been, it's been touch and go with the site for a while, but the one thing that we could always consi- consistently uh, count on was those affiliate checks from Apple. And now those are going to cut down, uh, be, be uh, stop coming in. That sounds unnecessary, mean spirited and harmful. I think so. I think, I think it is. Um, so an Apple, I think basically thinks that they can corner the market on app discovery uh, through their recently improved uh, app store. But uh, there are, other ways that people need to find apps and, and a lot, I think a lot of the, the sites, the websites that help with that are now basically going to probably shut down or at least get scaled back because uh, of this unnecessary mean spirited and, and harmful uh, policy change. I don't like it. So yeah. I- and you know, it's, it's a reasonably generous affiliate rate is 7%. Mm-hmm. And you know, they tried to drop that down last year and they got beat down by the, uh, the developers and the publishers, but man, that's did, um, those Apple, sites do a, do a valuable thing to, to review these apps and, and tell people which are the best ones. So sure. yeah, that sucks. Go ahead. Did Apple provide any kind of, of justification reasoning. Uh, not really. Uh, let me see if I can quote it super fast, but, Basically, uh, Tidbits said uh, it was a very terse uh, email message to affiliates and saying it was getting shut down. With the, with the launch of the new app store on, bo- on both iOS and MacOS and their increased methods of app discovery, it will be removing apps from the affiliate program. That was it. All other content apps, music, movies, books, and TV remain in the right. affiliate program. For now, I guess, but yeah. who would really trust that? Uh, exactly. exactly. They don't want to give up any of their trillion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And this was their most profitable third quarter ever that just ended ever, you know, but not profitable enough. No, no, they're not more. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. That sucks. Yep. Even though I don't, I'm not an Apple affiliate. I'm aware of affiliate programs helping lots and lots of sites exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. Mm hmm. So on that note. Yeah, we should probably wrap it up. Well, what's coming up this week? I mean, I'm just heads down answering questions and doing the usual. Uh, Hopefully my garbage will get picked up tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) They'll probably put a tag on it saying, eh, this is too heavy and stinky to pick up. Could be, you never know. Uh, I'm just getting ready for a a trip that I may or may not be taking. Don't rob me. Um, (laughs) That's where where are you not going? I, I, I am not going to Poland. <laughs> I'm not going to three cities in Poland, uh, which I, I, I have never not been to. And uh, it will, <laughs> it's the big, the big summer trip, and that's going to be great. So cool. Uh, cool. Yeah. Look forward to seeing some pictures. I will put pictures on, on the socials media. Sure. Yeah. Should you go? Should I go? Which I won't. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you because that would right. be. Smart. But if you don't, then make sure to just post some pictures of your dog or something. Okay. Great. That's what I do. Yeah, but I'm just still waiting for a response from the house offer. And if that doesn't work, we'll look for another one but or negotiate. Right. But uh, that's taking up pretty much all of my spare time. <laughs> Wait till you have to move all that stuff. 
that'll take yeah we're hiring movers (laughs) even though it's a local move hopefully you're also uh, downsizing as much as you can as you as you go oh we've been decrapifying the house uh, ever since we got this idea right right good 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 answer the new one this potential one is a bit larger than your current one isn't it yeah well we're actually selling two houses we own two houses on a on a road that has four houses. Right. Um, one of them is the office. The other one's the house. And we sold the office instantly because it's a smaller property. It's cheaper. It's a different price point. The house is a little more deluxe. So, you know, it's, it's going to take longer to sell. Right. But the new house is going to combine the offices and the house under one roof again, because my wife and I are tired of being separated all the time. So, um, and commuting a whole half a block every morning. Well, Poor thing. next door, to get next door, it's a third of a mile, either walk or drive. So it's it's not trivial. It's not like, you know, you're... And sometimes it's in, in snow and... 30 rain, seconds. Right? Yeah, yeah. Snow or mud or ice. Yeah. yeah. So... Well, yeah, what, it, you're, what you're not hearing is the world's smallest violin. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> you're just, but, you're so, jealous of my... So the new house is going to be bigger... Yeah, the new house is going to be bigger than the old house, but it's going to be smaller than the two houses. It's a combined. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, I hope it goes well. I wish you good luck and good prices. All right. And I hope your trash gets picked up. (laughs) All of Seattle hopes that. (laughs) (laughs) All of the neighborhood anyway. And the show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh35. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Tweet at us, would you? Just so we know you're out there at the TEH podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next Monday or Tuesday. See ya. Bye.